Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. This is Jay Kill, and you're listening to the Impact Outdoors podcast. Um, and I've always just been in love with the African scene. Um, I grew up reading those, you know, dangerous game books, and you know, I've always just been fascinated by the wildness of Africa. I've never really been afraid to just jump off into something, <laughs> just see what happens. Um, so anyway, I, I said I'm going to go to Africa for my next internship. Um, so I ended up going to the Dallas Safari Club, working there as a, what they call a show intern or a convention intern. And uh, so that whole week, you know, we're working the convention. But the reason I took that internship because I knew there'd be people there from all over the world, and uh, specifically Africa. And I spent that entire week trying, you know, just talking to as many people I could. And I, I said I had, I had four days to find an internship. <laughs> so I was like, a lot of pressure was on. And so I was like, it's my shot. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Impact Outdoors Podcast, and we've got a, another great episode here recorded from the Huntfish Podcast Summit earlier this year with Mr. Jake Hill, and Jake is a, um, just finished up working for the East Foundation down in South Texas and is uh, moving into law school up at Texas Tech, but he has done so many awesome things. Uh, it's pretty incredible having him on the show to talk about some of his adventures um, working over in Africa with Big Game over there and, and some of the great conservation efforts going on with Buffalo Kloof and, and uh, some other areas over there in South Africa and uh, just just you know some great info about how to be successful and, and following your passions and stuff. So really excited to have Jake on the show and have him at the summit this year. So let's jump right into this episode with Jake Hill. This episode was recorded live at the 2023 Hunt Fish Podcast Summit. Podcasters and guests from across the country come together to talk about their passions for hunting, fishing, and conservation. This year's summit is brought to you by Waypoint TV, Ron Hoover Marine of Galveston, Spot Stalker Guide Service, the Wild Sheep Foundation, Galveston Fishing Company, Captain Experiences, and Badger Claw Outfitters. Here. This is the third day of the podcast summit this year, and uh, I got my buddy Jake Hill with us today. Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. 
having a blast out here. So <laughs> it's uh, it's been good so far. The Warren Ranch is is a really hard place to have fun at, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much stuff going on. Um, fishing, pig hunting. The guys are over here shooting bazookas or something at the <laughs> gun range right now. You'll probably hear some of that. And then uh, we're sitting here looking at this uh, awesome lake here at the lodge that they've been just whacking the big bass mm-hmm. this week. And um, a lot of cool people. Um, yeah. Really excited you got to come. You've How old are you? I'm 22. 22. You've got to do a lot in your life already. I've, I've been very fortunate to, to see a lot of things and do a lot of things. Yeah. So. Well, um, I know that probably stems from uh, a supportive family and just being raised right and in the outdoors and, and all that stuff. But kind of what you know, what started for you? We're going to get into some of the things you've been doing here in the last couple of years. But kind of what's what's been the drive for your passion for the outdoors and the forestry and all this stuff that you've been doing? Right. Um, you know, growing up. I grew up in a very rural family. Um, you know, we had a family cattle operation, and, and so I was always outside. I never really spent a lot of time inside mm-hmm. um, in any way. So a lot of my free time was spent, you know, doing something in the outdoors, whether that was, you know, on the farm or in the woods or on the lake or whatever. Um, so, you know, like most of the guys here, I had an early, you know, connection with that and passion for that. and always knew I wanted to find something in the outdoors to, to, to do. I, I, at least I thought, but I, I didn't know what that would look like. Yeah. Um, you know, as with most kids, you know, maybe having your own hunting show is always kind of the original dream. <laughs> exactly. But, um, for me, I, I ran in, I've just happened through circumstances, just strange events that happened. Um, we had a couple of cows get out from our, uh, from one of our leases and it got onto the neighbor's property and we went to go ask him you know permission to go on his land and get get him back started talking to him and he found out he was a wildlife biologist <laughs> and um i had no idea what that was but i said it sounded cool yeah <laughs> um and so i got talking to him about it and it didn't take me long to really figure out like that's that's what i was gonna do and i when i really when i first met him i think i was in seventh or eighth grade and so ever since then, like, that's that's been who I am and, and what I do. Um, and I've chased that that passion all around the globe, um, different ecosystems, different wildlife, doing a bunch of different stuff. I, You know, I still love to hunt and fish, but even for me, I get a greater kick out of, you know, the, the science side of it now, yeah. too. Um, you know, I like to hunt and fish just as much as the next guy, next guy but for me, it's it's it, it's a lot more than that for me now um but that definitely was the driver of it all and you know i've uh, been just so fortunate to do a lot of different things so early in my career that you know it's i wake up every day and i have a blast yeah so. that's pretty cool and i mean a lot of your friends growing up i mean you know they probably didn't know what they're they may still not know what they're wanting to do you know and mm-hmm. i think that's really special um for you and some other people that are here that started so young and and kind of knowing what you wanted to do and definitely in life or at least the path that you know you thought it was going to take you down and and um i think a lot of people today are scared to jump off the cliff and try new things and <laughs> yeah. go for their dreams and stuff i mean that's 
Is that something like your parents instilled in you or? <laughs> yes, in a way. Um, but frankly, whenever I got set out, like this is what I was going to do, it, it was nothing that my parents or my grandparents or any of my family ever heard of before. <laughs> and so they were actually quite, they were definitely skeptical, but they were, my dad was kind of a little bit against it. He's yeah. like, you know, it's nothing. He had never, you know, the science field was definitely something that was just different. Different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my family's been a very kind of just blue collar, like, you know, manual labor kind of jobs, you know, mm-hmm. working cows. You know, my dad's a lawn, he owns a lawn care business. Um, you know, my grandfather worked, was a, you know, carpenter for his whole life. And mm-hmm. my brother was a welder for a while that is a mechanic. And so, like, the whole thought of, like, you're going to do what? And yeah. and the and a lot of the first questions were, like, like can you make a, a living doing that and everything? And, and frankly, at that young of age, I didn't know all the options or where it was going to take me. But I really – I told them, I said, like, I really don't care what kind of money it makes. Like, I, I don't – I'm not doing it for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it t- turns out, like – it's just like any other career, you know, it's what you make it and yep. you can make a really good living in it, um, in this c- career. And so, but that never was the driving factor for me. Mm-hmm. I always told myself that, you know, I'd make it work. Um, cause having a, you know, waking up every day and, and, and going to work with that kind of passion for what you do and you're excited for things and, you know, uh, and you're divi- you're dealing with a living ecosystem, an animal every day, and it's just trying to. When you deal with, some, I mean, you can't get just pumped up about accounting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, I know what you mean. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah, you know exactly what that means. Some so. people may, but not us. <laughs> yeah, not me. <laughs> I knew that for a fact. So, uh, but that's you know, but definitely the my family did instill in me a, a, a drive to like if you're gonna do something like you're going to do it and mm-hmm. do it to, you know, as best you can. So, um, that's something I've definitely tried to do in all my, all my work and travels is, you know, you know, make use of the time that we've got. So, so when you, um, kind of start going down this path, like, um, like where'd you end up going to college at? So I went to Stephen F. Austin State University. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there in Nacogdoches. Um, it really worked out cause I was born and raised in Nacogdoches. So I stayed in my hometown for college. Um, and it just happened to be that SFA's got one of the best wildlife management programs in the country. Um, stellar forestry program as well. Uh, my degree actually is, the title is Forest Wildlife Management. So it, mm-hmm. I have, because the way the curriculum is structured at, at the college uh, and that specific degree option, once you graduate, you have, you're accredited under both the Wildlife Society and Society of American Foresters, so it allows you to become a certified forester and a certified biologist, okay, which awesome. most schools across the country completely separate their wildlife degrees and their forestry degrees. And so you can, you know, get a good wildlife degree from a, one school, but then you're limited to just wildlife, whereas some schools just have forestry, and then you can't get the wildlife yeah. of it. And the great thing about SFA is that it, it puts it both together and it's 
I frankly think that's how it should be because, you know, forest management is wildlife management. Exactly. Um, so yep. that's where I went to school, graduated in May 22, and, um, yeah, it was a blast. So. And so you've done some really cool stuff since then. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know um, – I've. I don't remember when we, I guess we first met probably what, what, two years ago or something mm-hmm. like that at the Houston Safari Club yeah. or something like that, mm-hmm. and um, year and a half ago or whatever. And and uh, but I've I've heard about you and known about you a long time through the brigades program mm-hmm. and that stuff. But um, Chester Moore, our mutual buddy, um, was like, I, I got you know I got to interview this kid at the show this week, and uh, I didn't know it was you. And I was like, he's been working over in Africa and all this stuff and doing this really cool thing. So tell us about that adventure and like yeah. how did that come about i mean how'd you end up over there <laughs> well so uh, during college you know every summer um you know with most degrees you, you would get internships or you worked in the summer and specifically in like the wildlife field you get you know a field internship during that summer and i was you know a lot of guys only get like one during their college career but i was adamant like i said i'm i'm gonna use these summers to my advantage and i'm gonna go mm-hmm. get different experiences um so i was big on getting different internships and i had i had done a couple worked for Texas parks wildlife worked for forestry consultant company and so I was looking for something to fill one of my summers and I was thinking about, you know, what experience I had and what I didn't have. Um, and I've always just been in love with the African scene. Um, I grew up reading those, you know, dangerous game books and, you know, I've always just been fascinated by the wildness of Africa. And so I, I've never really been afraid to just jump off into something. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) Just see what happens. Um, so anyway, I, I, said i'm gonna go to africa for my next internship didn't know what that was gonna look like or how i was gonna do it but i said i I was gonna do it um so i ended up going to the dallas safari club working there as a what they call a show intern or a convention intern and uh so that whole week you know we're working the convention but the reason i took that internship because i knew there'd be people there from all over the world and uh, specifically africa and i spent that entire week trying you know just talking to as many people i could and i i said i had i have four days to find an internship <laughs> so i was like a lot of pressure was on and so i was like it's my shot and so i just went around talking to people asking for references you know who i should go think about talking to and anyway through a, a friend blake barnett who actually uh is the host of trailing the hunter's moon uh hunting show he I was asking him, I said, what do you think? Who, who should I go with? And, and he said, I, I, I got somebody. And so he pulled me over to a booth, and it was uh, Buffalo Kloof Private Game Reserve. They're a reserve in the eastern Cape of South Africa. Got talking with them, and I re- and they do a lot of great conservation work with cheetahs and black rhinos, elephants and stuff. And uh, they did a lot of hunting, too. And I said, this is this is a perfect place where I can blend that kind of hunting aspect along yeah, with the conservation absolutely. aspect and so got talking with them and they they said they'd love to have me and so got my foot in there um did a three-month internship with them in the summer of 21 and um had a blast over there great experience um you know i owe buffalo clue so much because without them i would have never been able to do what i've done so had a great time with them came back from my senior year of college graduated in may of 22 and then i go back to africa for another three months and uh this time i 
I mean, the best way I can describe it is I just kind of bummed around Africa for three months doing different <laughs> wildlife stuff um, with kind of just hitting up all the connections I had made over the last kind of few years and um, went back to South Africa to the Karoo area, um, got my professional's hunter's license, did the course, and spent some time there in the uh, in a little town called Vanderkloof. Um, then from there, I went back to Buffalo Kloof for a little bit. Did some guiding, um, some some local hunters, South African clients. Um, and then I was part of a, uh, at Buffalo Kloof, we started a, a program, a conservation program, where we take natural resource and wildlife students from the U.S. Um, and bring them over for like a three-week experience mm-hmm. to really teach them about the African way of conservation management, what it's like to manage, you know, a, a landscape with, large pachyderms and large herbivores that, um, you know, that we don't really have anymore over here yeah. and the dynamic that that creates on the landscape. And so we, we, it was the second year we did that. So I was in charge of that program, um, director of it. And so we had that, another group of students come out, spent three weeks with them, had a great experience. And anyway, once they left, I left for my next adventure, which was in Zimbabwe. Wow. And I was there for about a month and it was just, it was a still, I still can't believe some of the things I got to do. And, um, cause I really got to see both the, again, the hunting side and conservation side. And, um, you know, we darted like 30 rhinos in 12 days. Holy we cow. did hyena work, you know, worked with a bunch of vets doing some different collaring projects. Um, talked a lot about, you know, wildlife management with them, you know, took part in several big, dangerous game hunts, you know, following up wounded leopards and wounded buffalo, you know, hanging lion baits, going on elephant hunts. So, you know, I really, it's what I kind of try to explain is that it's a lot more than just what I did. I didn't go over to hunt. Um, I really got to see something that most hunters never get to see because, uh, a lot of hunters, when they go over there, they have a, obviously a great time, a great experience, but they're so focused on one part of the dynamic over there, and that's they're going over there to hunt buffalo or leopard or, or whatever. So they're always in this, like, they spend all their time chasing animals and, and trying to hunt, which is great. And I did that a lot too while I was over there. But something I got to see that a lot of people, a lot of, like, hunters that go there never get to see is, like, I got to live over there for yeah for six months mm-hmm. i got to be a part of the culture i got to dive into not just the hunting side but the science side and the management side and that took me places that the hunting would have never taken me and um made so many friends over there and connections and you know it was like it was like going back in time for me to you know i guess what it would have been like you know in america being like a a long time ago yeah a frontiersman yeah it's just like wild open landscapes wild cultures wild animals wild places and it was it was a blast That's so awesome so you mentioned you got um licensed as a professional hunter over there so what was that like so that was a so each country has their own kind of regulations on um what what they require as far as like what to become a professional hunter um zimbabwe is the most is the strictest um it takes a 
it, it's like almost like becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes a lot of time and practicals and things. Uh, some countries don't have any licensing requirements. Um, some are a little bit more lenient. Uh, South Africa is a little bit more basic. Um, so I took a regular professional hunting course at a place called the Northern Cape Professional Hunting School in Vanderkloof, South Africa. And, um, that gave, it was a 12 day course and it had, uh, several, it had theoretical, um, te- uh, theoretical kind of, I had theoretical tests, yeah, lectures and things. Then we had practical sides of it where we had to actually, you know, have like caping practicals, field judging, trophy judging practicals, actual, you know, we had to guide our fellow students and things. Um, then we had like the legal side and that was, you know, important because we had to basically memorize the, the Eastern Cape law of, mm-hmm. or I mean the Northern Cape law of, of, you know, hunting, you know, just like we have licenses and the hunting yeah. regulations here, we had to memorize that for over there. Um, so we had all these tests and, um, Anyway, we took one um, big test at the end that would license us and everything. So um, it was a great experience. Um, learned a lot. It qualified me for uh, planes game. Um, it to get your dangerous game license, which is includes uh, leopard, lion, rhino, uh, buffalo, elephant, and uh, hippo. Mm-hmm. Um, to get that, you've got to do additional schooling, um, that, that I didn't do. So I'm not certified in that, but I am, I can guide, uh, local clients over there. That's really interesting because I don't think I ever knew that there was a course that these guys had to go through over there. I mean, it's just something you never really think about. Right. I mean, like over here, anybody could really be a hunting guide. Mm-hmm. You know, on the coast where we where I run my charters, like we have to have a captain's license course and 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 re up that every five years. But I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah, it's it's a it's much different than um than here as far as that goes, and that's partly it's a due. Good thing, it's in a, my it, opinion. Yeah. Oh, especially when you're dealing with you know a lot of animals that can kill you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's. It's partly due to the fact that they have so many international hunters. You know, most of the American hunter, most hunters in America are, are domestic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of people like will go up and hunt. You know, elk or pronghorn or mule deer or whatever. Like most of those are sit American citizens that yeah. do that. You know, we do get international hunters. Over there, it's the opposite. Most of their hunters are international, and so they've got a greater responsibility to to take care of people. But then again, like I said, it's a such a different dynamic over there as far as just the kind of situations you wind up in than in than here. Because you may be just chasing a, an impala or a you know wildebeest, something relatively harmless, but you're hunting in a landscape that's filled yeah. with. It's like Jurassic Park over there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, a buffalo could be around a bush and you don't see them or, you know, run into an elephant or whatever. So it's it's different. So, yeah, that's got to be intense. And, and, um, you know, you talk about, um, like the high percentage of the hunters are all from international countries and stuff, not from there. You know, um, 
talk about your point of view. Like I've had Chris Dorsey on the show and, and talked to him about hunting in Africa and some of the stigmatisms it has. And, and me and Gray Thornton from Wild Sheep Foundation talked about it a lot. And, um, you know, it's like, what is your perception of how important the hunting is along with the conservation that they were doing at Buffalo Kloof and in those places, mm-hmm. um, to be, a um, a form of income for the native peoples and, and that kind of thing. Because, you know, over here we, we struggle so much with the, what I, I just call it the Disney effect and stuff. And like, mm. you know, you're just going over there and killing all these poor animals and they're not doing anything to you and, and right. this, but I mean, there is a point people can understand why we hunt here in the U S but you go to Africa and you can't understand why animals need to be mm. managed to be sustainable and be able to reproduce efficiently and and that kind of thing. What's your thoughts on all that? So I I really got two points on that. And the first is you're exactly right. I mean, over there right now, without hunting, people cannot afford to, to conduct conservation. Um, They cannot afford to do management. They can't afford to do anti-poaching. So there's really kind of two different dynamics over there. You've got the South African dynamic, which is in South Africa, you don't have the uh, vast concessions and conservancies that you do in like Zimbabwe and Botswana and Mozambique. In South Africa, you've got a lot of large pieces of land, but are, are, are fenced off and, you know, um, so that those are actual operations those are private Mm -hmm. land hunting operations kind of a lot like this ranch would be right or any texas ranch and those people there is a mark you know there was a higher value of wildlife than there was of cattle or domestic livestock and so that's what all these game reserves popped up um and that was solely due from the fact of hunting the value of hunting that animal is more than you know a sheep or goat and so like you hear the term if it pays it stays exactly and that it seems like that's so true over there mm-hmm. and the reserve i worked on buffalo kloof they can't afford without hunters they could not afford to run that operation yeah um and you know like when covid happened and international trouble was shut down so there's so many uh operations that had to close in south africa and sell out because they didn't have the income to mm-hmm. maintain it and so it, yes it is vital um especially in south africa but also in you know places like zimbabwe and botswana in mozambique and namibia you've got these large concession areas vast you know several hundreds of thousand acres millions of acres of you know vast landscape that the primary source of income for those places is from hunting. Um, and, you know, when you remove that it, and you don't have anything to backfill it, you don't have an alternative purpose for it, yeah. it just becomes a problem. Um, you know, when you're hunting elephants, you know, you're getting in income from the elephant and you're providing protein and everything. But when you shut down hunting of that, now an elephant's just a problem. He's a mm-hmm. crop rating, dangerous animal that is affecting your livelihood and is no longer providing a valuable purpose on the landscape. Yeah. Because they don't appreciate the ecological value of it. Like, And frankly, 
they can't afford to. Mm-hmm. We can afford to appreciate the ecological value of something here. They can't do that. Um, and so, because it's a direct inhibitor of their their life. Um, not only what, you know, their food that they're eating, but also just actual, just their life. It's a dangerous, yeah. uh, it's a dangerous situation over there. And so, when you remove that incentive to keep that animal in that landscape, it just becomes like, all right, we're going to poach it. We're going to get rid of it. Yeah. So, yes, hunting is definitely an incentive um, for, for that. Uh, the other point I was going to say is, while that is the case, um, and we've all had these anti, you know, trying to explain to the anti-hunting community of why this is so necessary and everything, we are getting to this point where the old st- the old concept of hunting and trophy hunting, like we just don't live in that world anymore. And I mean, right now, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is seeking public comment on ceasing elephant importations again. Mm-hmm. And so this is just going to get worse and worse. Um, and so we, I think we as a hunting community, you know, because obviously we're all more concerned about the resource than, you know, the actual conservation of the resource. And so we need to be, th- I think, have a little bit forward thinking on, all right, this is eventually we're going to get outvoted on this. And eventually our same arguments that we've been putting forward, whether they're right or not, whether, you know, they could be the truest argument in the world, but if no one listens, yep. it, it doesn't work. So I think we need to be forward thinking on how are we going to manage African wildlife in this modern world where they won't allow hunting to be the tool that it can be. Hmm. Um, and part of that, I think, is shifting the value of wildlife to a local scale rather than an international scale. So what I mean by that is, you know, here in the, in the States, in the U.S., there, the value of a white-tailed deer is a local value. We're not dependent on hunters from Germany to come over here and shoot our deer. Mm-hmm. It's a local value. So whether Germany shuts down importations of white-tailed deer, it doesn't really matter to us. Like, it's not yeah. a drive. It's not like that over there. The value of an ev- elephant is an international value. So when ele- when England or Norway or the U.S. shuts down importations of an African animal, there is no local value. Mm-hmm. So when you shift that local value, shift that value to a local scale, then if U.S. shuts down importations of leopard or elephant, it's like, okay, like y'all's lost, but like we still are, the value is still greater locally. So it, and when you, and when I, the reason I think that's important is because when you have that local value, that increases management stability. So then they have an incentivized reason to manage that thing on a local scale, mm-hmm. which, again, as you manage it and conserve those landscapes, that the perpetuity of that animal being on the landscape continues. So that's like, I don't know, it, it's just weird because, like you said, it's just going to continue getting worse. The barrage of tightening restrictions on importations and and things and i mean just like when they shut everything down like you couldn't go anywhere like we don't know if that's going to happen again yeah like if that happens two or three more times i mean that's going to shut pretty much everybody down Mm -hmm. over there yeah um it's a scary thought um 
Did you have any um, interactions with poaching activity while you were up there? Did you see a lot of that still? Or? I did. Yeah, we were um, one one day we were checking lion baits. We were we had a hunter, um, and we were checking some baits that we had hanged. We were making our rounds, and um, we checked this one bait, and this was in Zimbabwe, and some of the trackers started talking about something, and. Anyway, we found a fire built right by one of our bit baits, um, and uh, they start. We started tracking the the footprints. It was kind of some creek creek sand, the creek bed we were in. Anyway, we tracked it, and we came up on two fish poachers um, pulling traps out of the water. And so uh, we attempted to, uh, uh, I guess, I don't reprimand. Uh, Catch them. <laughs> this is the best word I can think of. Um, and um, tried to, you know, uh, you know, we pulled all the nets and all, all the water. We actually never caught them. Um, they they got away from us. But that is definitely a very real. I mean, it's we one of the operations was the rhino darting operation. We were doing a lot of uh, transmitter work and and tagging. Um, ear notching and we caught a rhino that had a snare around its foot um the, and the skin had nearly grown over it it had festered up and almost become mm-hmm. gangrenous but it's like and i was just like you know it's just something you hear on the news and i was just yeah. like i was like in my mind i was freaking out i was like i'd be freaking out just to see a rhino in the wild <laughs> <laughs> well i was like i was just like it's got a snare on its foot like what do we do and they're just like like yeah like it happens, happens all the time, and, like, we've already lost one round of this year to poaching. And, like, so, like, it's a world they live with, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked with the anti-poaching task unit there. Um, you know, I got to fly around in their, their kind of bush plane that they do patrols on and, you know, talk with their trackers and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, it's, a, it's a world this is, it's a lot different than here. So is the, like, like, with the poaching and stuff, like, the local government, like, what, I mean, is there punishment for that i mean like what happens if they get caught did they just like be like no you can't do this and they just let them go or yeah I mean, so it, they get incarcerated somehow there or? are laws against it um and they do have a you know a, a legal system that deals with that um you know once poachers are caught they'll get sent to court and everything hmm. um but frankly africa is so corrupt that a lot of it just it doesn't really matter uh, a, a lot of the people that a lot of the anti-poaching operations that I've talked to just like we're, we're catching the same people over and mm-hmm. over again um, you know some some juries uh, judicial systems are better than the others that are that actually do enforce it but a lot of stuff is just so under the table and so just you know you, know, you, you just the legal system not yeah. like here. It, I no, mean, it's just, no, it's just not. Our concept of that is just it's, totally different. Then. It's a it's third world country and, and third world things happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and people like, so Kruger National Park, uh, there's a, the poaching that's happening there, it, it's far worse than people think. It, it's not just poaching, it's a war. Um, they've lost like 50 rangers between oh, like wow. the last five years already just from like dead you know from getting in poaching fights and everything and you know a a rhino poacher is different than a than like a plains game poacher 
like a, so. a bushmeat poacher. Bushmeat poacher typically has dogs. He runs snares, and he has like a little spear or what they call an assegai or something. Like he's not set up like a he's not doing it for the same reason that a mm-hmm. poacher is uh, a rhino poacher is a bushmeat poacher is either one poaching for himself or he's poaching to sell the meat yeah he's not uh, a rhino poacher is poaching something that is extremely valuable right a uh, rhino horns worth it's like $300 more than an ounce of gold an ounce of rhino horn is $300 more than an ounce of gold. I think last statistics that I heard crazy. was like 1900 something dollars for an ounce of rhino horn and it's like 1600 for an ounce of gold. Um and the the mere tools they've got to have to do that to poach a rhino makes them dangerous. They've got a gun, they've got a machete or an, an axe to chop off chop off the horn. Uh they don't use a chainsaw obviously. That makes too much noise. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a post rhino is a very gruesome sight. I mean, it's not pretty. Um, it's not like you shoot a deer and, and skin it and everything. It, it, it's by, it, by its very nature, it's a, it's a messy yeah. uh, event. And and again, when you interact with those kinds of poachers, they mean business, and they're willing to die to to do what they want because you know if they it's you've got this dynamic of like all right i'm gonna go poach rhinos and be able to provide food for my family and build a decent house um or i'm gonna just starve to death Mm -hmm. and so they're like if i don't shoot this rhino i'm just i did nothing better to go back to so it's like it's worth it to them to put up a fight to do that um all the houses around all the native kind of not native, but all, all the towns, you know, around Kruger National Park or villages or communities have exceptional houses. <laughs> it's because they're, you know, poachers who now mm-hmm. can afford to build a decent house. And so in some ways you can't blame them. In some ways, you know, you can. Um, so it's, but so anyway, saying that the, the, the poaching in in Kruger especially is is far more serious than people think it wow. is. Yeah, I think most people would just be blown away. Like they, I mean, they don't they don't see or hear or know about any of this stuff going mm-hmm. on over there. And if they hear about it, they don't really pay much attention to it. And yeah. hearing you talk about it, I mean, it's opened even my eyes up. I mean, I know what goes on, but um, knowing somebody that's been over there and experienced this, I mean, it's just kind of a different different vantage point mm-hmm. i mean um i'd love to go over there I, I met a i met um one of the guys um that works for matsomi safaris okay. at the houston show and uh, ran back into him this year at nwtf show in nashville and and um, um hearing some of the stories that he shared on the podcast with me i mean it was just from somebody that that's lived there his whole life and stuff and right and uh and it's it's pretty incredible man it's it's such a unique situation, I guess, mm-hmm. um, from from where that's at. But I don't know. It is. Um, has any of your other family did they ever anybody come visit you while you was over there? My or? my one of my sisters did. did um, she? she was actually a part of that student program okay. um, that came over. So it was it was great getting to share that experience yeah, with her. I bet. So 
Um, but yeah. Hmm. You think that's some place you'd want to go back and work long term? <sighs> yes and no. Um, yes, in the in the fact of like, I mean, as as a wildlife biologist, like <clears throat> you could you couldn't ask for something better. I mean, you're dealing with you know such large, vast landscapes, untouched landscapes, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of wildlife, um, and there's so much opportunity for wildlife management and conservation over there to, to, to develop stuff and build stuff. Right. Um, it, it'd be great. But again, going back to, it's like, is that a di- is that a cultural dynamic that you want to spend your life in? Is that someone you're going to raise a family? Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. you know, as a bachelor guy, I'd be like, like, you know, maybe just starting off like, yeah, that'd be great. Like, and, if I didn't have other kind of career plans, I'd probably go back in a heartbeat and, you know, spend maybe a couple of years there. But also it's, you say I went back and spent four or five years there, you know, I'd have a blast and I'd, you know, learn a lot, have a lot of probably wait 10 times cooler experiences that I've already had already. But if I ever came back from that, you wouldn't have a lot of sh- to show for five years besides it was a cool experience yeah you don't once you leave there you you leave those connections over there you've you don't you you know if i want to live in the u.s long term it'd be five years that i wasn't building something here yeah and so it it all depends on kind of what yeah. you want and for me it just didn't fit what i what i wanted it to do so has that kind of um because you're doing some really cool stuff right now i mean you're working yeah. at the east foundation for example. I am. And uh, that's, I won't say anything similar to Africa, but I mean, we were talking about it earlier at breakfast, you know, how that's such a big area of land that y'all are doing all this cool stuff on. Mm -hmm. So talk about how you ended up down there and kind of what what you're doing with the East Foundation. Right. Um, So I've always loved South Texas, deep South Texas. It's, I went to my first Texas Brigades camp in South Texas and I don't know. It it imprinted on me in a real strange way that a lot of other places haven't. Um, that I just I love the dry heat down there, the brush country, big deer, quail. Like I, I love that, and and most that landscape is uh, largely unfragmented compared to other parts of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always loved it down there. I did. I worked for a while in Catula and a, a Texas Parks and Wildlife WMA down there. Um, you know, had some other experiences down there with like brigade camps and everything. So been down there back and forth. And, but when I went to SFA, I kind of got out of that and I hadn't been there in a while. Um, you know, a lot of my experiences, professional experiences, work experiences have been more of a forced ecosystem Mm -hmm. kind of approach forestry. And so I didn't have a lot of experience in a rangeland system, which is far different than a you know, managing a forest ecosystem. And so I, uh, East foundation is a, you know, one of a, a leading organization in kind of developing, you know, wildlife and, you know, agricultural research, how those work together, right. uh, you know, wildlife and cattle. And so I, uh, and I've, you know, kept in touch with them over the years when we go down there on deer captures during school. But, um, anyway, I, I, I knew I needed this, this element of wildlife management conservation in my toolbox and I didn't have it. 
Um, and so I, you know, applied for a, a position down there as a, basically a, a range management slash range management intern or season. It's not really intern. It's a seasonal position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of my work down there is, is cattle and range management focused. Um, and so about 75% of my time's cattle operations. So, you know, brandings, weanings, you know, palpatings, you know, moving cattle, whatever. Um, and then the other 25% is focused on, you know, range management, you know, looking Mm -hmm. at trying to develop better, better methods of determining available forage and how that affects, affects stocking rates and everything. So it's, it's definitely been a deep dive for me into learning about, range management which is exactly what i wanted so um that's pretty cool you were talking about how they're kind of set up in different branches down there mm-hmm. so like you've got what you're doing and then they have like the wildlife research side and right they have like a out as an outreach education education right. yeah branch mm-hmm. yeah that's cool and like you said there's there's not a lot of places in the country that have a anything like that where they right. can mesh all this into one big kind of research site right and um, that's pretty incredible I and mean, i've heard tons of stuff about the east foundation and all the cool stuff they do down there and i was real excited to see when you um said that you were going to be working down there for some mm-hmm. um but i know you also just you've got some big plans <laughs> you're going to be moving to lubbock i guess that's soon. right yeah i moved to lubbock uh lubbock um late july early august so, so what are you uh, going to be doing there well uh you've done everything else there's only a couple <laughs> things left to do right yeah um <laughs> It, we're going to be moving to Lubbock and going to Texas Tech, and I'm uh, going to law school. So That's awesome. It's uh, I, I still am a little surprised myself every time I say that. But, uh, you know, I would have never dreamed or thought that that's where I would end up when I got into this field because, I mean, it's, intuitively that just sounds completely different than everything I've done and yeah. am doing. and. But I really found an opportunity to where I could blend those two worlds together, and I feel like that fits my my personality and my goals really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'll allow me to have you know a good impact on things in that position. So, but yeah, I'll uh, I'll be headed to law school at Texas Tech. Um, it's a three year program, so um. And I intend to focus in kind of natural resource law. And when I say natural resource, I I know that means a lot of different things in the legal field. That means everything from oil and gas to to water rights to in, environmental stuff to you know even wildlife and forestry stuff. But at, for me, I'm going to take a very focused approach on the wildlife and natural resource side of the legal uh, field. And so. Obviously, I will deal deal with the oil and gas and environmental stuff to some extent, but I'm definitely planning to to keep the legal side of my career attached to my my wildlife mm-hmm. background, and so um, I'm gonna try to blend those together and hopefully <laughs> have a good impact on conservation. So that's awesome, man. That's really cool, and man, I'm so excited for you. Um, one of the one of the last things i wanted to talk to you about today was like you got your stuff together i mean for for somebody that i mean i know you laugh but i mean me from my vantage point and you've been through brigades but i mean i miss have been around so many 
young people going into college and stuff like that, and you have too, but like most people don't know what they want to do or don't have a plan. And I think it's a lot of times due to the opportunities that have been presented to them, mm. but also that they don't have the initiative to go out and find those opportunities on their own when they don't come to them. And I would have never got to where I am. I mean, I say this a million times, but for not going out and trying to find volunteer opportunities mm. and stuff like that, you know, to get me on with where I'm working now and, and have had a, almost a 20 year career there and stuff, but kind of watch your, what advice can you give to people that might be living this that might be, you know, going into college or even yeah. late onset, you know, job career changes? You right. Know? Mm-hmm. Uh, my ev- advice would be you need to find something, and again, this is, Cross professions, you know, not just wildlife, not everything. It, and this is something that has made me, I think, you know, able to do the things that I've been able to do. Is yeah. you've got to find something that you love, but also you're good at, um, or or at least have the opportunity to be at. Like, I rode Bronx for a while. I like riding Bronx, but I was horrible at it. And I mean, I got after that, I got dumped on my head so many times. I'm like, all right, I, I probably need to do something different. Um, so uh, you need to find something that you're passionate about, and that you know that that you think you might be good at. Um, and and don't really be too worried about you know trying to be the next billionaire. Um, that 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 clouds things, and that. And it distracts it from you know a a good you know life experiences I think sometimes yeah. um so for me, definitely that was something that was big for me was finding something that i I wanted to do and love and then then finding a good mentor and i you know i <laughs> such a key thought through this this whole weekend it is it is and and for me is you don't really you don't really find a good mentor a mentor finds you and they they latch on to you cuz they realize what they can what your potential is mm-hmm. even more than you do and that was so foundational for me cuz my mentor was that wildlife biologist that I was telling you about that our cows ran onto his place like mm-hmm. he has been so instrumental in my life because he realized he knew what was out there he knew the opportunities, mm-hmm. and he knew me as a person. He knew what I'd be good at um, and what I might want to do um, far better than I ever knew myself. And so, again, it's hard to say, yeah, go find a mentor. It's it, it's really – I would just say that's a necessary component of, of finding something that you really want to do. Putting is yourself in situations where these things putting happen. And, and you know this way better than I do. For me, one of the best places to do that is somewhere like the Texas Brigades. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to do wildlife stuff before I went to camps. Like, I knew, I was like, yeah, I, I want to do that. But I really didn't know what that meant. And I didn't, you know, other than the fact of just, yeah, it sounds cool. Like, I didn't know anything else much about it. But I went to my first camp. And after I left my first camp, and having met those instructors, those prof- wildlife professionals, 
it was clearer in my mind than it had ever had been before and I hadn't looked back since then and I just you know it was because of those those mentors those people who who shared their you know their world with me and that really fueled that for me and and directed me and you know I've reached back to them countless times for advice for help for you know what should I do here I've never had dealt with this before or whatever it's just so key especially in the wildlife profession so somebody that's looking you know I can't you know I can't speak for every profession but I can say find something you love to do um and then make sure you get a good mentor to do that and that is so that that recipe is necessary for the wildlife profession um mm-hmm. and I, I would say i guess it's the same for the fisheries um it is. as your side it is and, and it's not easy Mm-mm. it's not an easy path to go down but I mean, you love what you do and i love what i do and because i loved what i did you know getting into the fishery science and all that stuff that has opened all these other doors and led me down all these other paths that i'm on now and yeah. like you could ask me 10 years ago. It's like, I don't even know what a podcast was 10 years ago. <laughs> right. um, I don't know. I think a lot of people didn't know what a podcast was 10 years ago. But um, say five years ago, it was like you'd <laughs> say, hey, would you be think you'd be doing this? And I'd be like, hell no. It's like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no way. I mean, I always like coming to Warren Ranch, but I didn't think we'd be doing here yeah. this with so many cool people and stuff mm-hmm. every year. Um, so, well, that's cool, Jake, man. What? I really appreciate you taking the time to come up here and be with us this weekend, and I uh, hope you you get something out of it too. And oh yeah, and um, really enjoyed hearing a lot more of your story. I didn't know. So yes, sir. Well, um, thank you for having me. It's I've enjoyed the weekend a lot so far. Yeah. So, so it's not over yet. So, um, but uh, can people follow your journey yeah, anywhere? Yeah, Let abs- us know where we can do that. Yeah, um, I'm on Facebook. Um, that's where I post most of my my adventures um different experiences i've had but you know anyone that's will you know wants to reach out to me about you know getting into the wildlife field or about some of the opportunities i've had or just general questions you know my email is uh, jake s hill zero zero at gmail.com um and then you know mr york here has you know my phone number and other information so if y'all y'all follow his podcast y'all can definitely reach out to him and he can put you in touch with me. Heck so. yeah. And we'll, we'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes. We'll link up Buffalo Cliffs pages and, and what they do and the East Foundation and stuff. And yeah. uh, that way people can click on that and look at it and see, see what all's going on. So, all right, man. Sounds I appreciate good. it, man. I think, uh, I think I got uh, some free minutes for here for, <laughs> for a little bit. I'm going to go right down there and cast a line and see if I can catch one of these seven or eight pound bass. There you go. So, all right, dude. Good seeing you, man. Yes, sir. Thank you.
every once in a while it's fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Waypoint TV and LG channels in celebrating Great Outdoors Month, presented by Battery Tender. Tune in every Tuesday and Sunday in June, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern, channel 109 on your LG Smart TV. You can also watch Waypoint TV at lgchannels.com.